Welcome to Café with Comadres. We are three Latinas meeting at the intersection of healing, faith, and justice. We're wrapping up a series on ancestral wisdom. My name is Sandy Ovalle, and I am joined by my comadres, Jennifer Gerraldana. Hi, everyone. And Karen Gonzalez. Hello, hello. Today, we are cleaning up the mesa after those good conversations we had in this Juntándolo Todo episode. At the end of the episode, I will walk you through making an altar and blessing it. You can be as simple or as elaborate as you want to be. I do recommend you find a meaningful space for this ritual in your home or wherever you find yourself today. In the past three weeks, we explored ancestral wisdom and connections through storytelling, la comida y la cocina, and communing with their ancestors. Jennifer is at the table with storytelling, reminding us of how stories help us make sense of what it means to love, to lead, to heal, to live, and ultimately what it means to be human. Karen invited us to join a rich table, exploring the seamless connections between the worlds of the living and the dead. And I shared with you about my Tia Virgen Cerros and the way it has nourished our family for generations while inviting you to reclaim the foods and the food practices of your ancestors for strength, nourishment, and celebration. And today, we want to dive a little bit deeper. How are these conversations present and reflected in our sacred text? And how are these dynamics reflected in our faith communities? So I'm inviting our resident theologians and biblical scholars here, Jennifer and Karen, <laughs> to give us a little bit of that. Thank you, Sandy, for that. I want to say I've so enjoyed these uh, rich conversations, and I love that we can discuss them really within our faith practices, you know, wherever we practice faith and however we do that, but also outside of it as well. I grew up in a very nominal Catholic faith. I would say my parents were really just cultural Christians. And then um, one of the things that was most memorable to me about the Catholic faith practices is that we were encouraged to pray to the saints because they were alive. They were in heaven. They're not gone. And I discovered much, much later that these truths came from the Apocrypha. So it's a part of the Bible that many Protestants don't view as sacred text. But right there in the Apocrypha is this practice in the stories that are found in these books. And like later when I came to follow Jesus on my own, it was in the sort of faith practice that was really suspicious of any mention of ancestors and our connection to them. In fact, all these conversations that we had, the way uh, storytelling brings us together, the way that la comida brings us a connection to one another um, and to our cultures. All of these things were really not part of any kind of faith practices. We were supposed to kind of assimilate, kind of become melted into this pot, right? The way that we hear this word, uh, melting pot. 
in all of these um, traditions that I was a part of, any kind of connection like that was seen as sort of occult or witchcraft, which were really, really bad words in those contexts. What I discovered much, much later is that there's a whole chapter in the Bible devoted to faith of the ancestors as well as storytelling. In fact, it's a really famous chapter. It's Hebrews chapter 11. And this chapter not only lists all of the names, but it gives a summary of their stories. I'm going to read you a brief uh, excerpt. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. You know, Jennifer talked to us so beautifully about storytelling. And when I read this story, I can't help but notice who's missing from the story. Because the story is being told from a particular perspective. And there's some really important people that are left out. We hear so much about Moses um, throughout the Bible, but especially in the Hebrew scriptures. He's one of the great heroes of the faith. What I find noteworthy is that the women who made Moses possible are not mentioned. Their faith is not mentioned in any way in this text. But in fact, it's the women who were the first liberators. We need to tell that story. That's an important story of our heroes of the faith. We have midwives who defied Pharaoh's order to kill all the male Hebrew babies at birth. Then we have a Levite mother named Jochebed. She realizes she can't hide her three-month-old son any longer, so she puts him in a basket where he floats down the river. And there, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses floating by, and she has compassion, and she raises that leader of the people as her own. And of course, there's also Miriam. Miriam, who was also a liberator alongside her brother Moses and who watched over him in the river. She protects her little brother, even though she's an enslaved girl, a person with virtually no power in that ancient world. She courageously approaches Pharaoh's daughter and she offers to help with this child. These are our stories too. These are our ancestors, the Egyptian midwives, Jochebed, Moses' mother, Miriam, his sister, and Pharaoh's own daughter. These are the ancestors that teach us what it looks like to resist creatively in an oppressive environment. 
And their resistance is so subversive and so effective. And it connects them to so many women today that also find themselves without power. Maybe they're oppressed by patriarchy or racism or both, but they're also finding creative ways to subvert these evil systems. I think of women like Malala Yousafi, whose simple refusal to give up going to school every day resulted in a violent attack. But this attack didn't destroy her. She persevered in championing not just her right to be educated, but every girl's right to an education. And I think about women like Greta Thornburg, who's a young woman, just turned 18, who speaks plainly and directly to world leaders. And she speaks to them about climate change and their need to address it. The spirit of resistance that comes from our ancestors, it lives on in the lives of so many women. Now in the next chapter of Hebrews, chapter 12, it's, uh, it starts, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. I love that. It says we are surrounded, not we were or not we will be. The fact is our ancestors remain. And when I think about the stories we tell about them, when I think about the, the fact that we even enact meals to remember them, think of the Passover meal that's still remembered by our Jewish siblings. I think of the meals that we share together because we remember the meals, for example, that Jesus presided at. These things are still bringing us together and our ancestors remain with us through them. Mm. Yes, they do. Amen and amen. Karen, you have me thinking about Miriam in such unique ways. And you're right. Um, We often, they're they're the untold stories of scriptures that hold so much wisdom in them. And, you know, when I I pause to reflect uh, the most potent and powerful moment in my own faith community, I grew up in the Wesleyan tradition. And one of the realities that happened within that tradition is that particularly in the Latina immigrant church, uh, one memory that sticks out above the others is testimonios, which, you know, I grew up in churches that held Sunday night gatherings where it was mostly hymns and stories. And we would sing from the hymn book and then somebody would just take the mic and be able to share a story. And there was an invitation for anyone in the congregation to share their stories. And if you're not familiar with what a testimonio is, a testimonio is a story shared in community that holds truth about who God is and who we are as people and what we're called to do. And theologian Elizabeth Conda Fraser describes them as public faith stories. And I love that she calls them that way because that's so how I resonate with them. But the uniqueness of my experience was that I grew up with a mother who was ordained and was a pastor up front. But besides my mother's um, influence and leadership, I grew up with churches who were mostly led by men. But what was so unique is that testimonios were often shared by the women in the community. And these women would give flesh and heart and spirit and texture to what it meant to live a life of faith. 
while men started to pontificate and would say all these things, it was the women who gave witness to God's work in the world through their stories, their simple acts of public faith. But these testimonies were also very challenging because they exposed the humanity that we all shared together. They often would describe a truth that I wasn't ready to hear. There are some women that shared stories of forgiveness and reconciliation. And I was like, mm, he no good for you, sister. You got to go back. <laughs> and yet there she was declaring that she was choosing to stay. They were raw. They included a lot of details. It was probably one of the only places where adults felt validated and seen enough to share details of their immigration story that had a lot of really challenging dynamics to them. And at times they were really uncomfortable because I didn't agree with the way that they saw the world. And yet it was a story I needed to sit with and hold. And I miss the fact that that is not a practice that is seen elsewhere, that in other um, experiences of gatherings of faith communities, stories feel like they need to be polished or timed and they have to end with some sort of bow on top of them. But the testimonios that I carried with me into my years of deconstruction and my years of doubt were not the polished stories. It was the stories of the vulnerable, raw moments of faith where women in particular, but also men would say, y Dios después, and then God did something and something changed. Or, and then my sister came and helped me and I felt like that was God. And what I love about this diversity of testimonios is similar to what you're talking about, Karen, is that this, I, this reality of ancestors, when I started to practice what Sandy will walk us through, which is the creating of, of an altar of remembrance for Dia de los Muertos, what struck me is, and in my theological tradition, we talk about holiness, um, and holiness uh, rooted out of God's love and about it being an outflow of the spirit, <laughs> of the spirit's work in our lives, so much so that we would join God's uh, redemptive and liberating work in the world. But when oftentimes uh, at the other extreme, when we think of holiness, we think of perfection and we think of uh, morality and just dogma and rules. And what I love about testimonios is that it often gave me an abundance of what it meant to be holy. What does it mean to be people that are human and spirit-filled and can join God in whatever God is doing in the world? And while there was this formal place of sharing on Sunday nights, the majority of the stories I heard in the faith communities growing up were around convivios, were about potlucks. And the beauty of a table, if we were to all be sitting, if you who are listening to us would be sitting at the table, it doesn't matter where we come in life. It, the table uh, that is hosted by Jesus, the Eucharist, is the ultimate equalizer. And I, in my faith tradition, believe that every table that is extended there on out is an extension of that table. And so tables should be a place where it's not just about digestion and good tasting food, which I'm all about, but it is about this commitment to the meal being the equalizer of humanity, of experience, of social location, and saying you get to bring all that you are to the table and you add to what it means to be human, to be an ancestor, to be holy, to be a person who is human and also spirit-filled to join God. So as we think of altares, 
And you demystified them so well, Karen, with all of the baggage that we might have around encountering them. The truth is that we have altar making all throughout scripture, particularly in the Hebrew text, where the people of God would gather around a particular place, a particular time, and put down symbols of remembrance to say, look at what God has done. Look at what has happened. How can we remember what has happened before us and what has happened after? And particularly for the people of Israel, one of the things that they get told so often is remember who God is, remember who your creator is. Because when we're left to our own devices, we lead to amnesia. <laughs> we lead to, se nos olvida todo, we forget, and we get so tunnel vision into the right here and right now. That is so, these practices like these are so important to say, these are moments of remembrance to those that have gone before us, to the virtues and the vices that they leave us to wrestle with. But it's also a reminder of how God has been present from generation to generation. And there is no one way to follow Jesus or to live a life of holiness. There's actually an abundance of cloud of witnesses that free us from having to constantly focus on behavior-driven perfection and instead allow us to breathe and live and be in tuned with the rhythm of the spirit instead of trying to count how many steps we got right and we got wrong. And so I'm constantly challenged by testimonios and I'm constantly welcomed in meals and I need moments and altars of remembrance because I too often forget and then I get really rigid with, with my faith and that, that doesn't serve anybody. Hmm. Yes, thank you, comadres. I love uh, what you have walked us through, that invitation to remember the stories of the people that have shaped us in their fullness of who they are, in the fullness of the places that need to be redeemed, the places that make them fully human, the places where we experience their nourishment, their kindness, their wisdom. And today we'll walk through how to build an altar. So as I said, find a space so you can join us in this practice. Altars are places for spiritual nourishment, where we come to pray and meditate, to contemplate, to rest and remember. Artist Ophelia Esparza of Self Help Graphics in Los Angeles teaches that altars take many shapes and forms. There is no prescribed model on how to build an altar. But what is important is the intention and the significance given to an altar in our daily lives. And since we talked about ancestral wisdom and connections in this series, this practice will include making an altar that activates that ancestral wisdom and those connections in your life. So for a moment, take a minute to think of an intention. What do you hope this altar can mean to you? How do you hope to heal in the presence of this altar? How can this altar be medicine and magic to you? Perhaps you need strength or rest peace, discernment, at a time of decision-making. 
set an intention for what kind of medicine you wish to receive in this altar. And now pick a space within your home where you will set the altar. Perhaps it's a table or a console or a windowsill. You know, I live in the East Coast. We don't have very large spaces. Just look around where you are. Perhaps you are in your desk and you're working. Make a space within that workspace. Perhaps there's an area in your house that just needs to be cleaned up for this. If you're doing this practice on the go or you have no time to do this more profoundly, I invite you to grab a collection of the things around you. Things that are already available in your surroundings. I'll give you a few seconds to gather 10 or so items that are around you. Things that you're already present in your everyday life. You may have been already set in an altar without even knowing it. I'm sure there's things around you that already play this importance of reminding you of your ancestors. And I'll invite you to play and to put these items as we follow this practice. As you're gathering some of these items, and as you're setting that table, cleaning it up, I want you to think of specific ancestral stories, or specific ancestors, or ancestral practices you want to connect with. Is there an ancestor in your family or community of origin whose wisdom or character inspires you, or who you'd like to celebrate, whose humor or whose laughter you want to experience? Do you have an object that reminds you of them that you could set on that altar? Perhaps a picture of them, a piece of clothing or jewelry that they may have left behind. Go ahead and bring it close to that space. Put it on that table or their desk. Or if you're outside, perhaps grab a stone or an item that can help you represent this particular person. Some of you may have recordings of your grandma's voice that you may want to set in here. Or perhaps there's a news clip for something that one of your heroes did that you can cut up and bring into this altar. Are there communal stories that have been meaningful to remember when in times of trouble? Perhaps you can write a couple of words that remind you of these stories or draw a picture of them. I'll give you a few minutes so you can gather this. And we'll play a little music. There are a few items that I like to place on my altars. Usually a candle to represent fire and light. Flowers that represent the earth and the life that exists in it. A bowl of water or any other container that can hold water, preferably filled with water, with running water from a natural source, like the ocean or a river. Some people also like to incorporate the wind into their altars, and so they place feathers on them. Usually, you wanna to try to find feathers that are around you, right? So. 
it's so unusual, but even in, in the city where I live, in Washington, D.C., in a custom land, often birds will just drop feathers around me. So if, you're, if those are accessible to you, that may be a way of representing the wind. The elements are a way of stabilizing us. They, are, they have a way of signaling completeness. We incorporate these four elements into it. But your community may also have traditional elements that you wish to incorporate. Perhaps it may be worth a conversation with elders. Altars don't have to be static. You can use the water to bless yourself when you come to the altar, or light the candle to remember the intentions that you had when you set this altar. You can bring new flowers when the old ones die. And you can continue to add to this altar as you gather other elements. Because this is an altar that is helping us also with the connections with our ancestors and it's helping us shape the ancestor we want to be, I invite you to represent those things as well. Are there characteristics that you really wish to celebrate from your ancestors? Perhaps it's their resilience their joy, their magic. How would you represent that in there? As you look around with the 10 items that you grabbed or with the intentional items that you went to seek, take a minute to look at them. Perhaps grab an item, hold it close to you. See how your body responds to that picture, to that candle. How is your breathing changing? Or are there particular places within your body that are resonating, feeling warm or feeling tense? You don't need to resolve what the tension is about or what the warmth is about but just notice what is happening in your body. Write it down and invite wisdom to guide you. Are you being invited to write about this? Are you being invited to rest? Are you being invited to bless yourself with the water? And I want you to join me in this blessing to speak over your altar as an intention for when you approach it. So I will say it and you can repeat after me. In this altar, I will gather wisdom from my ancestors. I will be strengthened for the journey and carried when I cannot continue. I will be shaped to be a nourishing ancestor to the generations ahead. May it be so. May it be so. And now, hmm. Comadres, have you ever built this altar? How is this altar building for you? You know, Sandy, I, I I wasn't making one physically when you were describing it, but 
it was so helpful to think of different elements when I've built as that is before for this time of the year. I've only included picture and food. Um, and so I, I really loved the invitation to think of how can I incorporate the land around me into this place of remembrance. And so while I didn't have all of the things with me, I made a list of things I need to go and gather. And perhaps in my walks this week, be more intentional to be aware of what I could bring with me to honor um, the land that I get to walk and that holds me every day. And I love this invitation that they don't have to be static and rather something that I want to invite my roommate and other friends to build with me, not just a... Um, an individual task for me to complete. So I'm looking forward to what the, uh, that will look like this year. Oh, send us pictures. I will. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Sandy. I really love everything that you've shared from the intention all the way to the blessing. I had an experience a few years ago that... I had a, a housemate who was Muslim and who was a devout Muslim. And she came one day into my room and she said, oh, you have an altar. Is this where you pray? Because, of course, she had a, a prayer mat where she prayed. And it was the first time that I realized I had built an altar. And in fact, over the years, I'd collected different items that of spiritual significance for me from different places that I'd been to in the world. And I had put them all together with spiritual books that had nourished me, that had guided and encouraged me. And I put them together with uh, candles and plants and water, because similarly, I love the symbolism of, of water uh, as a, this you know source of source of all life and in particular one of the most special things to me in my altar now is the last time that I was in in Mexico I bought a a Virgen de Guadalupe and she's made of the corn husk mm. you know from the outside because I love the Virgen de Guadalupe um, not just because of her miraculous appearance, you know, in the Americas, but because she represents us. She was indigenous and dark-skinned, and she spoke indigenous languages when she appeared. And so it's so fitting to me that she should be represented in these corn husks, right, which were so important to the nourishment of our people. So it's one of the most special things to me in terms of connection to the earth. And as I, as you were guiding us through this practice, I thought about the wisdom I want to gather from my ancestors, the way I want to be strengthened, the way I want to uh, engage in this blessing, and then being more present to this altar as a, as a place to, to pray, to seek healing, and to seek um, discernment and wisdom. So, 
very beautiful. Thank you so much for guiding us through that. Yeah. You made me think, Karen, of how we, uh, in the Christian tradition, we often talk about setting ourselves apart for God or setting uh, setting things apart, right? Like holiness as like a set apart. And I think of altars as being that, that space that can be set apart from the rest of our lives and give us this wisdom into connection, into our spiritual life. Well, you may wish to replay this episode as you gather your elements um, later and as you activate things. We'd love to also see your pictures. If you end up setting up altars around your home this time of year, please tag us at Café with Comadres and we'd love to see what you're doing with this. Bueno, queridas, thank you so much for joining us. If you like this podcast, please leave a review on whatever you listen to podcasts. It helps others find us. You can also follow us on Instagram at Café with Comadres and leave comments on this episode's post to continue the conversation. We're also having a special live time this month to guide you on how to make pan de muerto, a traditional Mexican bread that we make during this time of the year. Y nos vemos en la siguiente sobremesa. Nos vemos. Hasta la próxima. Adiós. Mm.